Welcome to Dangerous Policy, I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And this is our week in review. Yay! How are you, Crispin? <laughs> ah, good. End of the year. Yeah. Goodbye, it's a, 2020. Well, yeah, it's a weird time, right? So this is like after Christmas and before New Year, like, I don't know. It just, it's a, I feel like it is a weird time, you know, finish all the food, um, roll over. Um, it's yeah. the time of inconsistency. You reckon? Right? Yeah, yeah, because what happens is, is you, 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 you promise you have all your news resolutions. Mm. You're like, okay, I'm gonna stop drinking, I'm gonna get more exercise, I'm gonna like spend less time playing games, blah blah blah. And then in that week period, mm-hmm. all you're doing is drinking, laying around watching stuff, playing games, like eating is all the food. So So I'll do it next year. Like <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 the Procrastinator's paradise is what yeah. the last week of the year is. Okay, yeah. Mm. You know, I've actually, um, I saw it on social media, so I kind of did it myself, was like, people were like, I'm going to take a break from social media between Christmas and New Year's. Mm. So I've done it, and it's actually, so I haven't been on, I mean, I kind of jumped onto Reddit a bit, um, but like Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that, like I would only really look for like messages. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, I haven't been scrolling, and I realised that, my goodness, the day goes so much longer <laughs> Like, because I saw my phone, right? I saw how many hours, and I think I spent like three or four hours a day on looking at my screen. And I don't know whether that's just playing in the background and doing other things or actually actively scrolling. So I was concerned. So this week, my thing has dropped by 45%, which I'm like, um, yeah. And one thing that worried me, though, was Instagram have just adopted Instagram Reels. Have you heard of, I don't know. No, just just before we get on that, so you've got an app or something that monitors like how much time you spend scrolling? Is that the... Yeah, well, it's on the, it's on the, um, the phone. So oh, I've got an iPhone and they just have like screen time ah. on it and you can click it and it will show you like what apps you're using, how many hours, how many pickups you do a day on average and then looks at the week and then it'll tell you on like my Sunday, you know, you use your phone 50% more or less or whatever for the right. week. Right, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 a good thing to try and get under control. Because uh, I mean, my big vice is like when I when I sleep, I tend to sleep well, but but I always without fail will wake up once, right? Mm. And so I will get the phone and check my t- the time. Say, okay, how much, how many hours do I have left? Like rel- relative to how tired I am, if I got enough sleep, blah blah blah. Yeah. And then because I've checked the time, I'll unlock the phone and oh. I'll see if I've got any emails. Yeah. And then when I check my emails from overseas, then I can go on to social media and scroll and see what people have been saying. And then, then the rest of the night goes. So mm. um, it would be a good, yeah, I, I think having that kind of feedback as to how much time you are actually burning on that mm. or how much time in a week of my sleep have I given over <laughs> to just randomly scrolling would be good to know so I might after off off camera hit you up for some assistance with being able to monitor that yeah uh, yeah yeah and you'll be very surprised like I wasn't I was pretty shocked um but you know going back online because you know TikTok mm-hmm. so a big thing obviously the social media giants are trying to you know absorb your time and your attention and so, um, yeah, Instagram just developed a, like a TikTok version um, for Instagram Reels. And I used Instagram a lot. So when I saw that and they were promoting it for, to me, I was like, no, nah, I see where this is going. <laughs> like, you're not controlling me. <laughs> but yeah, no, nah, it's been great. I think people, it's a good challenge, actually. It's only been, a, it's only a week, really. Um, and just see like how much work you can do, how much writing you can do on this book, apparently. 
Yes. Well, that that's the thing that everyone can hold me to. By the end of this year... This year? Or next sorry, year? Sorry, like this coming year. This coming year, yeah. 2021, I will have my manuscript for my next book mm-hmm. finished. Um, it doesn't have to be published by the end of 2021, but it has to be finished and and basically edited yeah might be a few footnotes or something but like basically it's there like i could give it to someone and they could read it from start to finish and Mm -hmm. have like a cohesive story yeah Yeah. do you want to brief on like what it's going to be about so it's a u.s china like i've only written non-fiction books and my last book was on donald trump and the rise of donald trump Mm -hmm. uh this one is on because my my main area of knowledge and background is, is strategy grand strategy nuclear strategy And the great story of our age is the rise of China, the new, uh, for lack of a better term, Cold War between the US and China uh, and the the global power struggle that will be unfolding over the next few decades uh, was certainly the greatest story in the world. Now, um, I believe the West is making some profound errors. China is making some errors too, um, but the West is making some profound errors and we have to realize the real possibility that China could win in this grand strategic struggle, and that I do actually see this as a civilizational struggle, mm. um, where the US could fall essentially mm. to um, a Sinocentric world order reestablished under the Chinese Communist Party. And so, this next book is on what the West's grand strategy should be mm-hmm. uh, against. The Chinese Communist Party and and why it needs to be this way, because uh, there are people are having their own ideas. There's a marketplace of ideas, but I think a lot of what's out there is deeply misguided. And I think it comes from a place of, first of all, people believing in things that don't exist, like soft power, mm-hmm. and secondly, uh, people who just they have an orientation that believes that the West will always win in the end, that, yeah. that the US will always triumph and it's just a matter of focusing enough energy and enough resources and effort uh, and they will absolutely try that's a, a kind of a nepenthe drawn from history that uh, is not like there was there was nothing about the united states that made its rise to global preeminence absolutely inevitable it was a sequence of events and there could be many alternative histories mm-hmm. just as there is a spectrum of alternative futures there's nothing inevitable about western liberal traditions and values being preponderant around the world in perpetuity in fact there's much evidence to suggest that that is a delusion mm-hmm. and the only way to ensure and safeguard and future-proof these sort of principles of individual rights and enlightenment uh, for the generations to come is through sound, cause and effect, thoughtful strategy that's better than the strategy of our opponents. That's how it happens. Uh, mm. it, it, we cannot afford what I would call to be uh, hopeful myths that rely on a sense of belief about the way the world should be rather than the grand strategic geopolitical real politic of the world the way it actually is uh, we could lose and that's the actual first three words of my book is that we can lose um, mm, yeah yeah and i think you can see it already right is that china is moving away from its map like you know data manufacturing into technology into ai <laughs> 
Um, and yeah, it's, I don't know, how long do you think it will take for uh, China to rise if we continue on this path? Well, the time continues to be compressed. So uh, after the pandemic, the latest projection is that the US will take over as the number one economic power in terms of GDP by 2028. Now, it'll lag behind in terms of military power for, for many years before mm -hmm. after that, but not that many years after that. Like, and, uh, and the earlier projections was sort of like 2035, and before that it was like 2045. Mm. Um, and then some people were saying it would never happen because China would collapse. And, it the, hasn't. <laughs> yeah, the, the, these ideas. I mean, China is two for two. They did much better in the global financial crisis than the West did, mm. and they did much better in the pandemic than mm. the West did. Uh, and for, but you know, it, it's true that the West still has some key advantages. It's not for nothing that the vaccine was created by Western countries, mm. uh, and the you know the, the brightest minds, the greatest research and development, all of that is still in the West. But not by much. Like the, the Chinese universities, they're racing through the world rankings. Uh, there used to be no Chinese universities anywhere near the top few hundred. Now there's what, 20 in the top 100. Mm. Uh, so China's indigenous, uh, you know, innovation, research and development, that's catching up as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's people, the, the fundamental thing is that for thousands of years, China was the number one power. Uh, except for maybe the Roman Empire. Uh, and that that creates a certain sense of entitlement, right? Like if, if you have the most people mm -hmm. uh, and all you had was the century of humiliation where um, for the first time ever, what broke the nexus between an individual's productive capacity and uh, the total national power was broken because all of a sudden we had engines and things like that that could do things for us. And that's why this tiny little country in the North Atlantic, Britain, could take over the whole world, right? Yeah. Um, but before that, the, the most important thing for national power was how many people you had and the size of your landmass. Uh, and we're going back to that as China levels out. They've caught up on the Industrial Revolution and now they're powering ahead exactly in the areas you say of cutting edge technologies um, that will allow them to not only fully equal that of the West, but in many key areas surpass it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can't assume that just because they have an undesirable political system, that that is inferior because those things are not the same. Mm, what do you mean by inferior? Well, I mean... Well, people... Uh, so after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a period of absolute triumphalist delusion in the West, yeah. um, led by uh, the hopelessly misguided essay by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History, mm -hmm. that said that Western liberal democracy would spread unfettered across the entire world mm. now that the strongest competitor ideology that of Leninist Marxism had collapsed. Yeah. And China studied the fall of the Soviet Union much better than the West did, I think. And they learned the correct lessons. And they understood that, unlike the West, which did not understand, that you don't need to have democracy for a successful market economy. So the West believed, uh, and certain parts of the United States in particular, that every economy had a ceiling 
that in order to break through it, you needed to have an open political system so you could get rid of the corruption, you could have an independent judiciary, mm. uh, you could have a high trust series of contracts and transactions. That would mean that once you get to a certain economic status, you would have to democratize your political system in order to continue to grow. Yeah. China realized that that was complete nonsense. The other thing uh, was there was an assumption that as the middle class in China grows, you had a, a begudgeoning group of highly educated people who knew about the rest of the world, who were innovative in business and wanted free trade and wanted free exchange of goods and services, mm -hmm. that they would also demand a political liberalization to go along with their economic liberalization. Mm -hmm. They were no longer focused on subsistence living. Mm -hmm. They now had time and leisure on their hands to care about political issues and they could make demands of the central government that would give them greater enfranchisement. Well, that assumption has been utterly blown out of the water. And I, I remember it, as late as a few years ago, people were still kind of suggesting that was a thing, but it, it was discredited long before that because China just doesn't have that tradition. So in China, they don't have the same narrative storytelling traditions as we have in the West. So in the West, the rebellious hero that stands up to the corrupt system or, mm. or the lone wolf warrior who goes and takes on a bunch of territory... That's a very Western kind of narrative, right? Individual conscience, individual agency mm. against a more powerful kind of group. In China, they don't they don't have that. They have, uh, you know, someone works really, 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 really hard and does the best thing for others in the community. Collectivist, a, a collectivist, you know, mentality. Yeah. The, the benevolent dragon that, despite being so powerful, I'll tell you actually a quick story. Not so quick, but it's quite funny. The, uh, the, the, the origins of the, the Chinese calendar. Do you know the story? Yes, and I came first, honey. <laughs> All right, the emperor. And then, yeah, the emperor. What do you mean? I'm a rat. Okay, oh, no. you're a rat. I'm a rat. Oh, rats. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're like. Um, yeah, I mean, you can tell a story, but okay, I'll start. So the emperor wanted to create the Chinese calendar. Yeah, the Jade Emperor. Jade Emperor. Of, of heaven, yeah. Mm -hmm. And decided, okay, in terms of determining the order, we're going to have a race with all these different animals. Mm. Yes. People weren't really listening to the emperor because only 13 animals showed up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, there was a rat, uh, the dragon, the horse, a cat. Mm-hmm. Or the other ones. So now oh, the gonna, yeah. The snake, the tiger, the ox, the rooster. Uh, a dog. A dog. That's, there's more. <laughs> there are, are there more? Why did you, why did you make his count without? <laughs> that's not even part of the story. Okay, whatever, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no. so, yeah. So they're all, like, doing this race. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, the rat and the cat were best friends. Uh, and the rat was kind of, you know, intelligent and mischievous and, mm. uh, and said to look, oh, that ox over there, uh, or he can, uh, he's pretty strong and he can go through like, like a the lot river. of things, the river. Yeah. yeah. So how about we make a deal? So they go up to the ox and they say, look, you know, we, we're, we're quite witty and we kind of understand the pitfalls and what things you need to worry about. So how about we all work together? If you let us ride on your back, we will help you navigate these these various challenges. And the ox is like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. It doesn't, you don't weigh very much. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So they all they all helped each other out. Yeah, and then like the rat pushes the cat over the river. Yeah, so they go across the entirety of China. They get to the river, uh, and then halfway across the river, as Charlene just said, they, the rat kicks the cat into the water. Into the water, and then it races towards the finish yeah, line. Yeah, runs off the end of the nose and hits the finish line first. Yeah. yeah. And the Jade Emperor is very impressed that the rat has... This tiny little uh, mammal has beaten all these great, powerful creatures. Yeah, I don't know how it beat out the dragon. Well, I do. So, oh. so the the rat comes first. The ox comes second, obviously. Yeah. Uh, the tiger, through its fierceness and strength of will, comes third. And then there's like whoever comes fourth, probably the horse. And then, uh, and then fifth is the dragon. Mm. And the Jade Emperor is looking at the dragon with a, some degree of dismay. It's like, you're a mighty dragon who can fly. How can you have come after the rat and the ox and all these other things? Well, the dragon says, oh, well, of course, you know, I have these advantages. But then I saw this poor snake struggling, you know, in this underbush. So I had to, like, you know, dig it out so it could escape. Uh, I, I, there was a torrent in this river that was going to wash the ox away. So I needed to breathe firmly to push the thing in the other direction. So in other words, the dragon stopped to help all the other animals along the way through its mighty power and thus sacrificed its opportunity to come first mm-hmm. instead comes fifth. Now, this oh, yeah. is allegorical for the great imperial family of China where the emperor of course, has all of these tremendous advantages, uh, but gives everything to the lesser people uh, mm. and thus is not going to put themselves first. They've got to put their people first and therefore maintain the mandate of heaven, allowing them to rule. Uh, so it's, uh, of course, an allegory of the, uh, of the justifying the Confucian imperial tradition. God, we're so selfish. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, first. <laughs> Well, rats are respected in, in China. It's yeah. not like the West where they're just considered vermin. In, in China, they are considered mm. to be quite amazing creatures. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's good to be a rat in mm. China. Oh, monkey. That was one we forgot. Yeah, monkey. Uh, so um, great story, great narrative, not really individualistic. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, but, you, uh, as I mentioned, 13 animals showed up. There's only 12 spots on the Zodiac. So who came 13th? Was it the cat? Yes. The cat? Yeah, just the like... The cat showed up wet and angry. And the Jade Emperor was like, oh, sorry, you missed out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why, to this day, the cats and the rats are mortal enemies. Ah. It's all right. They go the lucky cat now. I had like a... You know, well, you see them in front of restaurants. I don't know. There's well, cats like, have conquered the internet, so... <laughs> that's true. So you, they, they moved to the Western culture, yeah. and that's where it's um, getting love. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Okay. Not about that. <laughs> and sorry. Um, so this year has been a big year. And I was just, you know, looking online and be like, what actually happened in 2020? Because in my head, this is what happened. January, February, March, blank. October, November, December. <laughs> and yeah, I just want to kind of go down the list of like things mm-hmm. that happened in this year and just if go down some memory lane. All right. Um, by the way, Christmas got me a Christmas present. Okay, so I had this belief that 
In fact, I was telling my friends because uh, we went camping, we got back, and uh, I was like, "Look, guys, I've got to be back by like midday at the latest because Charlene is showing up at one thirty, and I am a hundred percent sure she'll bring me a Christmas present, and then I will be up creek for the next year because she will hold it over me." Like, no tomorrow for not giving her something in return. So I needed to get back in time so I could get a prison, like, before she showed up. Uh, and uh, so we all raced back for that singular purpose. And and uh, I managed to find, uh, it says uh, a Byzantine diary. It's a, I mean, a Byzantium is one of my great historical loves. So it's got the, the Byzantine purple. Mm. Can't really see it in that actual image. It looks more red there. But, yeah. Uh, but Anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, he got me a present like, Damn it! I did. I did think about it, but I was like, "Nah, like you won't get me anything." <laughs> so I'm right. Lump of coal next year. That's <laughs> <all right. laughs> no, no, no. So you know how there's like random days throughout the year. So this is my plan: is just to pick a random day in the year, and I'll just be like, "Happy X day." So it'll be like, "Happy Horizontal Stripes Day," <laughs> and get you something. <laughs> so yeah, it'll come. Who knows when? Yeah, to, to make up for this. But anyway, um, yeah, so a lot of things happened in 2020. And I just want to go down memory lane to see, you know, what happened <laughs> uh, that isn't uh, to do with the virus. Mm -hmm. Bushfires. Australia had a significant bushfire in December of last year, going yeah. to January. Yeah, we, ha we had massive fires. But the thing about in the foreign press... Mm. It was like the entire country was on fire. Yeah, right? no, it wasn't. Sorry. It wasn't. It was localized to certain places. And I went overseas for a poker tournament. I was actually one of the lucky people to have gone overseas last year before the thing hit mm. uh, in January of last year. And I was seeing these other poker players. I went for a poker tournament. And uh, and the poker players were like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to the Aussie Millions, which is in Melbourne. Uh, but we were worried about the bushfires. And I was just like... Like it, it, Melbourne is a long way from those bushfires, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, there was that Twitter post that went viral oh. and it made it look like entire Australia was burning, <laughs> but it really wasn't. And the before and after picture, like of like you know, it's basically summer and winter, mm, right? But as opposed us, yeah. to um, as opposed to bushfire or no bushfire. Mm. Uh, but yeah. a lot of houses were burned down, and it, it was a devastating mm. um, experience um, for a lot of families. People, yeah. yeah, yeah, and the koalas. I mean, like <laughs> the koalas. Um, but yeah, like, and to face, think about those families have lost their home, and then obviously with the. I mean, I don't want to talk about the virus, but like you know, it's like mm. they're we still recovering from that. The, the event, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But bushfires happen a lot in Australia, like oh, yearly, yeah, every year. We have very, very hot summers and a lot of long grass and a lot of dead wood. Mm. Um, it's mm. just a matter of whether or not we have the appropriate management mechanisms in place, and and uh, and if, as long as we manage to conserve our climate, let's say, uh, then then we should be able to manage it. But um, yeah, it's a big, it's a, it's a well-known thing. Australia has bushfires. Yeah, yeah, quite a lot. Mm. Here's a fun one. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry left the royal family. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that, that quip from Trump. What? You know, when, they, when he was asked what, what he thought of Meghan Markle. Yeah. And he said, because um, you, you played the clip on one of our videos, he's like, Oh, I'm not a fan of hers. She may have heard that. Um, 
Uh, and for Harry, I, I wish him the, the very best of luck because he's going to need it. <laughs> she does look like she walks all over him. Oh, absolutely. I just... absolutely. But it's kind of weird how there's a lot of support. I mean, I can kind of say other side, right? It's like, but she wasn't born in the royal family. So she went in and then took a royal out. I don't know. Yeah, it's always bad news when an American divorcee marries a British royal. We saw that with Jessica Simpson and the former king. Uh, and then we see that with uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. It's not Jessica Simpson. It's somebody else. Jessica Simpson is like... God. It's not. I'm pretty sure it's not. Am I wrong? No. No, you might be right. Like, no, Jessica no, Simpson me... is some white person. <laughs> that, I don't know. You've got me, you got me paranoid now. Uh, anyway, so... Um, you can cut it out if you like. <laughs> Yeah, so say that, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but Meghan Markle, uh, she signed up to be part of the royal family mm-hmm. and she didn't obey by those norms. Like, the royal family in the UK isn't famous and made, you know, a household name by virtue of their individual talents, Right. They're made famous because of their representation of the British monarchy and the continuity of British life. Mm -hmm. And thus, if you join the royal family, you are not just joining that individual or even that family, you're joining that institution. And so uh, to divorce yourself from the royal family Mm. without actually leaving the individual... Uh, is to divorce yourself from the British public. How do they make money? Do they just, like, taxpayers kind of, like, help the royal family and then the royal family go out? And I just have no idea. What, by the good graces of the British public? I mean, they, they, the sovereign owns... Technically, sovereign... It, it's kind of strange. Technically speaking, Queen Elizabeth kind of owns all of the UK, right? Mm. But, of course, you know, there are conventions, Magna Carta, private property you know, the, the conventions of parliament that, that have mitigated that. Uh, but the sovereign has enormous personal wealth and constitutional power. Uh, but by and large, most of their expenses are covered by the British public, British taxpayers, because they have a lot of security, a lot of travel. But then mm. again, they do a lot for the British public as well. Like mm. they're the ones that are out there, like it's a huge tourist attraction. Mm. Uh, they're promoting Britain on the world stage. They're representing the best of Britain and they held the country together in times of great trial. People always hang out to the Queen's Christmas Day mm. speech, as they certainly did this year, uh, where people look for... Uh, an acknowledgement of pain and suffering that has been experienced, but also a message of hope and optimism, things that cross party political lines, mm-hmm. um, whether you believe in Brexit or, uh, or, you know, whether you're left or right, um, you know, the Queen stands above it all and she has been an exemplary figure mm-hmm. unifying the British public. And um, Prince Charles will, if, if <laughs> it's a questionable whether, whether anyone will outlive Queen Elizabeth, um, but, uh, but you know, he could become king and, and carry on that tradition, albeit to a perhaps a slightly less effective degree. Mm. Uh, and then Prince William is someone that is generally popular and respected as a custodian of that tradition. Yeah. But Prince Harry, before all of this happened, was the most popular royal because he had a kind of a common touch. He was, he was a, a, had that younger brother persona. 
Um, he was, you know, a former soldier. Mm. And so he had that, you know, every man sort of appeal. Um, but Meghan Markle has made him toxic to the British people uh, because the British public, it's it's a deal, right? They, they turn you into a household name, power beyond the wildest imaginings of anyone any commoner that a British person could experience. No matter how rich you are in the UK, mm. uh, you'll never have the influence of the Queen, right? <laughs> you could yeah. just... I find it so admirable that... I mean, I have a lot of British friends and they always talk so positively about the Queen and they... Yeah, it's just such a unique connection like, to the Queen, <laughs> um, which I don't obviously understand because I'm not British, but... Um, yeah, it creates it's... continuity to British life. You know, yeah. like in... in, in when you join the parliament as a minister in the United Kingdom or even just a parliamentarian, you swear an oath of allegiance to the Queen. Mm. Uh, you are not the you're not Boris Johnson's minister, you're the Queen's minister, uh, and you serve at the pleasure of Her Majesty. Um, and so it's that unifying force, the sovereign seal, that has existed well. I mean, since the Norman Conquest, but also well before that, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, um, and thus it, it, it it's quintessential what it means to be British is to unify around the uh, the British monarchy. Now, if you've got someone that comes in and says, you know, British monarchy is a joke and uh, and, and uh, you know it's all kind of racial prejudice and whatever else the the, the um, sort of fraternal fad of the day is and therefore you're going to divorce yourself from the british monarchy mm. what you've been given is the greatest privilege the british people could ever bestow if you remember that Meghan markle wedding right a colossal event broadcast around the world and then just to say no i'm not yeah no nah, i'm out <laughs> I mean, yeah it's I think the British people are rightly upset with Meghan Markle, put yeah. it mildly. Mm. Yeah, mm. no fair. Yeah. Mm. Um, what's happened? Trump got impeached. Yeah, it didn't go anywhere. But yes, he got impeached. Um, just, where did it even come from? I don't even know where that came from. Yes, yeah, so it, it, impeachment is a is a procedural fact. Like the he got impeached because Congress elected to impeach him. Oh, okay. But it doesn't get referred to. The, the courts unless the Senate agrees and of course the Senate knocked like, it back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah nah. Mm. Yeah. I was like a yeah nah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um big part, I think, a significant amount was the Black Lives Matter protest that happened. Mm. Yeah. It, I think I don't know what it is. Perhaps it I guess it's just a snowballing effect of you know with COVID and um yeah. Restoration. It's just this story. I think resonated with a lot of people. There's a there's a lot that can be said about it. So, first of all, um, Black Lives Matter has a history. Mm. Now, I was in New York years ago when the first Black Lives Matter protest broke out. There was a man who uh, had been strangled. Um, by police in Manhattan for selling cigarettes on the street, right? Accidental death and so on. I I still think that the police involved hadn't been prosecuted. Now, the protests at the time, which were completely peaceful Mm. and took up 
100,000 people down the streets of Manhattan, perhaps closer to a million. Um, they were about something very specific. Mm. They were about the idea that there was a perception, real or imagined, that law enforcement could kill people of colour without the same repercussions as if they'd killed a white person. So there was an idea that, look, if they kill a white person, there's an investigation, there's all these different interest groups, people going over and over what happened and what alternatives were and what lessons mm. can be derived and blah, 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 and holding people who are genuinely culpable accountable. Yeah. Whereas there was a perception that that would never happen when it comes to black people as evidenced by the fact that to this day, I think that police officer was never prosecuted. Yeah. So that created a, a big wave of sympathy and change was implemented as mm. a consequence of those protests. Now, when George Floyd was killed, visually on the cameras, it looks identical. He's strangled effectively, like the guy kneeling on his neck, mm. uh, and he's saying exactly the same thing, I can't breathe, right? It was the same quote as, as the first protest. Now, the problem with these protests... Uh, there's two two big problems. The first is that it's not about the same thing. The system actually worked in this case. The police officer involved was prosecuted, right? Mm -hmm. The entire police departments around the world, including certainly in Minnesota, mm -hmm. uh, were revolted by the... Uh, by what had happened to George Floyd, right? There was no one coming out defending this action as legitimate police action, okay? Yeah. And thus, what was the protest for? Because it was clearly about, originally, about the perception that if it was a white person, there would be justice, but there wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in this case, it was a black person and there was justice, okay? Mm -hmm. So, yes, it was a terrible thing that happened, but the system worked. The, the, the culture rallied around the law in terms of prosecuting the offender. Okay, I think people are mad about it just happened in the first place. And it, and because it was just so visual, like to see a black man, you know, being like, I can't breathe. And I'll, yeah, like... Well, that brings me to the second problem. So, I don't know. It's, it's still ingrained in my mind. I'm, I can't regret watching the video, to be honest. Yeah, look, it was a terrible thing that happened. Like, nobody is on, on that guy's side, right? But the the problem with the... The second problem is that BLM isn't just a movement. Mm -hmm. It's also an organisation. There's capital B, capital L, capital M. Uh -huh. And some of the things that that organisation believes is totally repugnant. Uh, and also on top of that, um, it was an out... There was a a grotesque excuse given and enabled by the media and many politicians mm. for breaching rules that apply to everybody exclusively for protesting Black Lives Matter. So you had these huge lockdowns across the United States, across the rest of the world, including in Australia, mm. where uh, you had all this social distancing, you weren't supposed to gather in groups unless you happened to be protesting a particular murder that happened in Minnesota by a repugnant police officer, mm. um, then the disease doesn't spread at all, right? <laughs> in which case you're encouraged to go out and protest. Now, one of the greatest gaslightings that happened in Australian history 
was when the media was cheering the protests in Melbourne. And I don't know how or why it happened, but we had a massive outbreak at exactly the same time yeah. across Victoria that led to months of repressive lockdown. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, it's just, it was just outrageous. So I think that the, the BLM thing, which I think has been a wave that has almost stopped now, um, has been as a consequence of pushing back against the social restrictions um, and that there was all of a sudden an opportunity to go out and revel in the street. Mm. And, and not only that, there seemed to be a certain degree of social permissiveness that allowed for that. Mm. Um, so people kind of had a bandwagon effect. So on the, on the plus side, on the, on the most generous side, you had people from the previous protests seeing another person die, seeing the same words be used and assume the same problem is happening. Mm. Not really thinking through, you know, the the idea that actually the original protests were about um, equal justice before the law, mm. which was applied, right? Mm. Um, and then uh, there's a, a group of people that see it as a political agenda to push a particular, you know, intersectional ideology. The capital B, cap, capital B, capital L, capital M, Black Lives Matter organization that's mm-hmm. pushing a particular view, and then you have. Uh, people who just saw it as an opportunity to get rid of these lockdown restrictions and, and go and live life again. Mm-hmm. So there was that pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. And then the final part of that would be there was a belief, very, very short-lived regrettably, that a lot of the social justice work intersectionality stuff that had been sort of oppressing us for the last few years that that would fall away with the pandemic because once you've got real problems to deal with, like a global disease, mm-hmm. that the imaginary problems become less important. Like people have less patience for people kind of asserting, you know, uh, why they need to tear down statues and uh, and why everyone has to respect their the things no matter what mm-hmm. um, when people have national crises, right? So there was this kind of almost hope that at least we wouldn't have to deal with that and for a while there that was true like that that all the kind of um uh, identity politics stuff went off the radar for a good few months Mm -hmm. uh, and then came back with a vengeance Mm -hmm. with the black lives matter movement so black lives matter you know brought back everyone taking the knee and and all of that sort of stuff Uh, things that we might have actually gotten away from but we regrettably didn't Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really... I haven't really heard much, actually, of the aftermath of Black Lives Matter. I'll be interested to know where it continues on from here and see if, yeah, 2021, if there are... Yeah, if it does come up again, perhaps. Because, I mean, it doesn't seem like... I mean, racism is is, is throughout our, you know... Um, it's a problem that, it, it, that everyone experiences. But that, that's, the, that's the other problem, like... Do, do we know that what happened to George Floyd was racist? Yeah, that's a like, thing. I don't know. It, I, I yeah. don't think it was because he was black, right? I think it was because the guy didn't have any respect for human life, right? <laughs> and therefore, you know, he, he could have been a white guy. And, that same, but, and here's the thing. If it was a white guy and white people are killed by police in America as well, yeah. you know, spoiler alert, um, uh we we don't see mass protests. I mean, we saw that that woman, an Australian woman. Um, you would remember 
the news stories about her. Same police department, actually, Minnesota Police Department. Names get your stuff together. Minneapolis, Minneapolis. Um, who, and it was, a, it was it happened to be a black police officer. Not this is relevant. Um, she, uh, you know, flagged them down because she'd called the like she she was reporting a sexual assault, and he shot her dead in cold blood. Right. Um, she wasn't a criminal. She was actually reporting her crime, and she looked like an ordinary person. She wasn't doing anything dodgy. Um, and he's, he was charged with murder. Now justice was done. Like he's been charged with murder. He's been thrown out of the police force, and he's he's in prison at the moment, going through his appeals. Um, but we don't see mass protests in the street for her. You know, very similar situation, really. Um, and thus, it's it, it it's become. Like the facts don't matter. It's, it, there's a, there's a strong sense of emotional catharsis that societies around the world are getting, even in societies that have no correlation with this at all. Like we saw protests like this erupting across the UK. Police in the UK don't carry weapons. They don't kill people, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have any like black deaths in custody in the UK, really. Um, it's it, and yeah, you had the whole country erupting in BLM protests as if it was the same thing, as if the police were somehow, um, you know, latent murderers is waiting to kill legions of black black UK citizens. And that, I mean, that was just like, it's the, what, what I'm saying is that these protests were emotionally driven and the emotion, the, the core emotion is uncertain. Um, I'm not sure 100% what that emotion was, but it's certainly not justice. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. I need to think about it a bit more because it has it has dwelled on me. Um, yeah, just because yeah, it well, it took a big part of twenty twenty. I'll tell you that. It sure did. <laughs> and yeah, cool. All right, another one. Um, mass protests in Belarus, mm-hmm. and we saw strong leadership from Lithuania, our Lithuanian friends. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, so Lukashenko been in power in Belarus since nineteen ninety four. Uh, has an election in August, wins an impossible proportion of the vote, and there's a government set up in exile, mm. uh, exile in Lithuania. So Lithuania gives safe harbour to um, the main opposition figures, so uh, a great like step forward, um, and, and really trying to drag the rest of the EU up to speed on this. So, mm. you know, the US is very supportive, uh, Britain's supportive, but... I mean, you know, France and Spain and so on, the dead weight as usual. The um, uh, and it's left to this this small country, Lithuania, to show real leadership as to you know what what should happen in a free and fair election, mm-hmm. and uh, in a, in a country where opposition figures are being arrested, disappeared, uh, tortured. You know, it's it's really quite brave for the Lithuanian government to have given safe harbour right across the border. In fact, uh, Lukashenko responded by calling up the military and doing a military build-up um, close to the Lithuanian border. So mm. uh, it really escalates the, the tensions. Mm. Um, but these are tensions caused by Lukashenko himself. Uh, and and also a great testament to, to a lot of these opposition figures within Belarus as well, like Svetlana Alexeyevich and and other, you know, prominent uh, Belarusians who mm. want Lukashenko to go. We, we should 
and I've said this in previous videos, you should understand that that Belarus won't go the way of Lithuania, right? And this this is more this is even a greater testament to Lithuania's sort of um, fidelity in this because uh, Belarus isn't going to become a pro EU Western bulwark against Russia anytime soon. Belarusians are generally pro Russia; they're just anti Lukashenko. He's clearly corrupt. He's been there forever. He's holding the country back. The country is mm. falling further and further behind, uh, and it needs to have democratic reform. The democratic parties within Belarus are still pro-Russia, right? They, mm. There are people that can deal with the Russian government quite happily and continue to consider Russian interests in the future of Belarus. So Belarus isn't going to be like, yeah, we join NATO. No, it's not going to happen. And the Lithuanian government knows that. Yeah. They're just standing up for the basic principles of self-determination, human rights, and liberal democracy. And uh, and they're taking the risks and putting their money where their mouth is to do that. So hats off to the Lithuanian government in that regard. Mm-hmm. And shame the rest of Western Europe who should be doing more. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, yeah. I've actually never been to Russia. Have you ever been to Russia? Oh, yeah, several times. Yeah. yeah. Well, What's the culture like in Russia? Well, that's a, that's a very broad question. I mean, yeah, it's like, a broad question. Well, because, well, 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 Russia, I mean, the, Russia is a great custodian of the human soul right mm. like that it's not for nothing that Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Pushkin and and Lermontov and all these um, great literary uh, thinkers um, have come out of Russia and then you've got some amazing music you know Rachmaninoff Tarkovsky things that you just you know Shostakovich uh, things that you just can't sit down and make up right there is a certain suffering from the Russian experience a deep pathos and depression that that really comes out that explores the psychology and, and depth of the human soul that the Russians experience. And the Russians did have that enormous experience of World War II where tens of millions of Russians died yeah. uh, liberating the West from fascism. So we, we do owe a debt to the Russian people. And as I've said in previous videos, I don't hate Russia. Uh, to the contrary, I, I, I love Russia as I love Lithuania and I love other places as well. I just think that Russia does need to do more to improve relations with Lithuania. And they, they haven't acknowledged the contributions of harm that, that have happened in the same way that they should. Um, but yeah, no, Russian culture is amazing. And, and I think any objective uh, analysis of the fact would, would say that we, we as humankind owe a debt of gratitude to Russian culture. Mm. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, I can, I can talk endlessly. And, I, and and some people actually, like, this, I won't call her a friend. That she, I probably shouldn't say this. There's one person who, I, I, who's a bit obsessed with me. And when I say obsessed, I don't mean romantically obsessed. I mean, she's just a bit stalkerish, right? <laughs> and it's been this way for years. And she believes beyond, like, and nothing will dissuade her. She thinks that I'm a Russian agent, right? <laughs> so, and she goes and she goes to Australian like security people and try, like, it's it's <sighs> it's actually really disturbing. And like, if you want to um, build the case, you you can, right? Like, I love chess. I love vodka. I love ballet and Russian music and and Russian literature and history. Mm. Um, I have a lot of nuclear expertise, and I've been to Russia many times. So if you if you do up a list, <laughs> right, you can kind of you, you, you can make that case. Okay, now it's patently absurd, and anyone who listens to these videos knows that I'm not. He's right? not. <laughs> um, uh, but 
nothing will ever persuade her. Yeah, um, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. She she thinks that either I'm a direct Russian agent who's, uh, you know, a double agent, blah blah blah, or or the the Russian government has such compromise, as she says, mm. on me that I just do whatever Putin wants. It's it's a it's an extraordinary. Um, she, she's just a very disturbed person. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Oh, interesting. Um, hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. This year, and that was a huge. I mean, that was just right before election, um, and that. Yeah, I think a lot of people admired her because, um, I mean, there's a lifetime. Um, what's the right word? <laughs> service. <laughs> oh, public service. Public service. Yeah. Um, Extraordinary figure, and it's she. She came at an age where. Uh, these things were a lot of firsts. Like, what? Any anyone can be nominated, uh, and I mean anyone. I mean, you know, obviously within bounds. Anyone can be nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah, it's another thing entirely to be a jurist who adds to the field of thought yeah. of what it means to be a legal thinker, right? Um, and, and she has added personally to the body of knowledge of how we understand and interpret common law in Western tradition. So her intellectual contributions mm. outweigh even her, you know, professional career um, outcomes. And if she had never become a Supreme Court justice, she would still be a towering figure in American legal thought. So yeah. whether or not you agree with her, and there's many things with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, with which I I would personally disagree in terms of certain certain decisions and whatnot. Uh, even even the strongest critic has to tip their hat to the depth of her learned understanding of the principles of which she espoused, and the fact that she never strawmanned any sort of. Uh, alternative argument she always went for the strongest arguments possible even when dealing with things with which she would profoundly disagree uh, and thus was not just a, um, a a powerful adversary but also quite a compelling one so yeah. a great testament to millions of particularly young women who who followed in her um, footsteps and, and are now pursuing careers that they would never have dreamt of doing otherwise mm. uh, and yeah it was an enormous loss to um, to American uh, judicial judicial life. Mm, sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that was a sh- oh, definitely a different like a, mm. a role model for many. Yeah, but but her replacement. So you know, obviously the Democrats would have preferred to have appointed <laughs> yeah, her. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself wouldn't have chosen the successor that she got. Mm. Um, but. You know, it's not like it's not like that. The institution itself has been demigrated by the replacement. I mean, clearly, um, cle- clearly, it, you know, it's in good hands uh, now in terms of in terms of judicial thought. Even with the six-three balance of Republicans, Democrats, mm-hmm. the people on the bench are are excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think Amy Coney Barrett is a good fit. I'm glad that you know. I mean, Trump had already uh, nominated a few more, but <laughs> like it's. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, mm, how it goes for next year. Just be careful with the 
Oh, yeah, I'm feeling. <laughs> She's I a fidgeter. I can't. Like, I need to <laughs> jump up and do some start jumps. Okay. Mm, what else is there? Okay, let's just more positive stuff. Let's do a show and positive. So, um, normalize relations between Israel and Bahrain. Israel and um, the UAE and Serbia and Kosovo signed a peace agreement. Yeah. And, That's and, incredible. Oh, uh, and, and more recently, Morocco as well. Um, mm. which is probably the most profound of the countries listed, uh, has norm- started to normalise relations with, with Israel, yeah. um, Sudan. Um, yeah, it's it, this is untenable or unthinkable, I should say, in, in years past. I mean, John Kerry has a very embarrassing... John Kerry, former uh, US um, Secretary of State, mm-hmm. has a very embarrassing thing on television from 2016, not very long ago, like last year of the Obama administration, mm. saying no Islamic country will ever recognise Israel outside of a Palestinian settlement. Like, you know, he, he goes on about this for a good 15 minutes, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and yet, what we have in just a few short years is tremendous turnabout in in attitudes towards Israel, acceptance of Israel, uh, and increasing Israel's sense of security will, of course, increase security overall. Yeah. Uh, so there is a real um, chance of a of a of a renaissance of peace blooming through the Middle East, and for which Donald Trump certainly requires some credit and. The most unlikely of heroes, Jared Kushner. Now, yeah. Jared Kushner, uh, obviously criticised for having any position of influence and power because he only got it essentially by being the the president's son-in-law, and that's totally nepotistic and and a fair criticism. But Nikki Haley, who was the uh, the former UN uh, ambassador to, um, oh, sorry, US ambassador to the UN, uh, and thought of as a future presidential candidate. Her parting speech or comments when she left the administration mm-hmm. was that Jared Kushner is a silent genius who should not be discounted, right? Like she, she actually went out of her way to say that. And she's someone of the Republican establishment darling, right? So mm-hmm. she is not part of the Trump kind of uh, orbit, if you like. Yeah. She's a, a full-on insider. Yeah, yeah. And the one comment she wanted people to take away is, look, you guys are all making fun of Jared Kushner because he's the president's son-in-law. I understand that. But he actually is amazing at what he's doing. Mm. Uh, And the proof is in the pudding. Jared Kushner has delivered foreign policy outcomes that have eluded American administrations, successive administrations for many decades. Uh, If you guys have time, I'd, I'd recommend a book called Innocent Abroad by Martin Indyk. Uh, to, to follow on from our, uh, a video uh, that will come out, if it hasn't already, on um, Australia's similarities with the United States, Australia uh, provided America with an ambassador to Israel. So the US ambassador to Israel under the Clinton administration is a man called Martin Indyk, who is an Australian. Uh, he has, obviously, American citizenship as well, but he's fundamentally Australian, was educated in Australia, and uh, I think currently he's at the Brookings Institution. So you should look him up. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, and he wrote this book called Innocent Abroad where it was it's the most self-deprecating book mm-hmm. I've ever read. So most books go on about how great they were and all the amazing decisions they make and if something didn't work out with someone else's fault and like yeah. all of that. He, he writes this entire book on all the mistakes he made as ambassador um, to Israel. 
thinking that, and this was at the time when Yasser Arafat and Rabin won the Nobel Peace Prize and they looked like the Palestinian two-state solution was a done deal. Mm-hmm. And they were right on the cusp of having this all resolved. And then Rabin was assassinated, the Prime Minister of Israel, by a radical right-wing kid, right? Uh, there's a shocking thing where, where the, the Prime Minister was killed. And, and he st- Martin Indyk still thought that, okay, despite what happened to Rabin and they were close personal friends, um, that the peace was still far along enough the journey that, that they would get there. And yet it all fell apart, of course, mm. as we all know. Uh, do yourself a favour, read that book, because it shows you just how difficult it has been for American foreign policy to try and get peace in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, Martin Indyk is about one of the most intelligent people alive. So um, his failures, which he is absolutely laying bare, mm. is really good induction into, into the complexity of that region. And uh, if you are some innocent abroad, go have a read. And the fact that Jared Kushner is succeeding where even Martin Indyk had failed is uh, extraordinary. It's truly extraordinary. So... Uh, hats off to Jared Kushner. Of course, Donald Trump deserves a Nobel Peace Prize for having this done under his administration. Don't hold your breath on that one. Yeah, I don't think he'll get one. Yeah. <laughs> we acknowledge you. Good, yep. good job. <laughs> good job. Yeah. <laughs> Two randoms in Australia. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of other ones, but um, it's conscious of time. Let's just do like reflections generally in 2020. Yeah. So... What's something you want to leave behind in 2020 and something you want to bring into 2021? I want to leave behind... So, as everyone knows, one of the most profound things that happened in, in my year recently was uh, was leaving the job I was in. <laughs> yeah, it was um, actually on my list. Uh I just like, <laughs> I'm not going to put this down as a significant event 2020. Right, right. Uh, for, for, for good reasons and for essential reasons. But it also made me realize that I have departed significantly from my field of, of knowledge and expertise um, because that role, although I loved it and, and would have kept doing it, mm-hmm. uh, isn't my greatest contribution, if you like. Um, and... Uh, I think I have to stop being in roles that distract me. And, and roles, I mean, in the broader sense. So not just work, but in other kind of roles that I have mm-hmm. that distract me from the biggest contribution that I can make. Um, the uh, What I want to take into 2021, is this like, so to, to clarify your question, is this something that happened in 2020 that I want to take with me or is it something? Yeah, like- so something you can learn in 2020 and you're going to bring into 2021. Oh, dangerous policy. Easy. Like, uh, <laughs> we, we, oh, no, I'm serious. Uh, I, uh, it has been, I think we're getting, uh, obviously there's a lot of, you know, upheaval and, mm. and we're a bit haphazard when videos release and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but if we think about the journey of where we started to where we are now, I think that we are really giving people a lot more value than when we began mm-hmm. uh, and that, that the community that we've created is, is something that is of intrinsic value. Uh, and so I definitely want to carry this into the future. And Charlene is way more strict than I am uh, and for good reason, like she's right and I'm wrong, uh, that, <laughs> that uh, you know, we need to be rigid about the times that things are released and, and, and much more, you know, like, 
regimented when it comes to our schedules and timings for things. Uh, and so we we are doing that and we're in the process of putting those structures in place so people can see dangerous policy, uh, not just as us talking, mm. uh, but actually a brand that people can rely on and rely on the quality and rely on the value. Uh, and that was the original vision and, and Charlene is, is helping that become a reality. Um, so, yeah, I want to take that into 2021. Mm, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Don't, definitely dangerous policy. Leaving behind in 2020 for me, like anxiety and negativity, I feel that was definitely promoted a lot. So like, I found myself in a cycle and also um, social media use. Like, I, found I was in a cycle where, you know, the lockdowns kind of happened and restrictions um, and I would just be consistently on my phone checking updates and it was just consistent cycle of negativity um, and nervousness. I think it's better in Australia just because we're more open now, but I definitely want to leave that behind uh, in 2020. And then bringing into 2021, mm, I've been really good in my exercise, like really good in terms of like going to the gym more. So I want to be more active. I want to bring that like, yeah, my value for health. Because everyone realized that, you know, as a student, you kind of uh, – put that to the side and uh, go to the computer and tap, tap, tap and have poor back problems. I mean, it's kind of ironic because I studied health, right? And one of the key factors to poor health is university, <laughs> just of the lifestyle. Um, but since finishing, I'm like, oh, I have all this time. So I go to the gym more and it's, it's been really great. And um, I would definitely want to bring that into and have like a proper routine. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Routines and systems would be great in 2021. <laughs> Oh, I agree. So Charlene, as most of you know, had me on this keto thing for a while and I lost a ton of weight really, really quickly. In fact, I felt a bit sick at how fast I was losing weight. Mm. Uh, and then, so I stopped after, I don't know, six weeks, something like that. So yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't long, which just put a lot of the weight would drop in that time. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I've put basically all of it back, but, but I, I there was... Unlike when before the diet, weights were part of that journey of getting back. So I feel like I've got a lot more muscle mass mm. than I had before. I don't feel like I felt at the same time that I was as yeah. weight last time. Um, so it's, a lot of that is muscle. But nevertheless, uh, I also think a small proportion of that, maybe a little larger than I want to admit, is uh, just weight gain. So um, I think I will get back under the whip and uh yeah <laughs> drinking like that um, well i mean alcohol so many calories and alcohol you know how it's processed in your so body much gin. like it's just it's just so much like and it takes like full 24 hours for your liver to process it goes through your bloodstream your um metabolism just like goes down so you're not losing any fat as you yeah you know excuse any kilojoules look it is a journey, and I think the alcohol. Oh. <laughs> so speaking of alcohol, something I learned the other night when I was thinking of various, I was, I was researching something else. So per capita, mm. Australia has slipped to 19th in the world for alcohol consumption. Oh, yeah, yeah. I uh, I think it's Belarus. Okay. But number three is Lithuania. So I think uh, just off the top of my head, it's uh, for pure alcohol per person, I think it's per adult, is 15 and a half litres of pure alcohol per person per year. 
yeah. in Lithuania. And in Australia, it's 12.2. Oh, wow. So I feel like a lot of people in Australia are letting the side down. Oh, Australia- excuse me. <laughs> Lithuania is doing something right. <laughs> More or less reason you need to move there. <laughs> Pay it up in Lithuania. Mm. Oh, yeah. Look, we'll see. Well, well, but we'll do a video on this because it's actually, it's really interesting to understand mm. patterns of alcohol consumption. You might be something you're interested in joining as well because it, um, yeah. it'd be good to understand what people are drinking in different countries. Oh, um, yeah. I'm going to break down. I can even talk about like how alcohol is processed just generically. To just... make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> Well, yes, more educated, understanding. Like, that's true, that's true, your though. liver is the best thing that's ever happened to you. Um, cool. All right. That's all the time we have for today <laughs> before we go to ramble. Um, hope you guys have a very safe New Year's. I hope this comes out. We'll come out New Year's Eve, hey? That's tomorrow. Yeah, it's coming out tomorrow. All right, cool. <laughs> tomorrow, which is today, what this video is. Uh, yeah, have a safe very New Year's Eve. We'll see you next year. <laughs> In 2021, uh, we, we hope for our Lithuanian friends, fingers crossed, we will make a trip up there once things open up uh, and actually meet with the, the people that have been watching this this show. Uh, I know we have Lithuanian friends who live in other countries as well, like friends you know living everywhere from, from Korea to the United States. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe they'll be at a bit of a homecoming. But, yeah, really looking forward to that. And, um, yeah, we'll see you next year. Yeah.